On this episode of The Prototype, I started to think about it being October. The leaves are falling off the trees. It's getting dark earlier. It just feels a little spookier this time of year. It's a little windier. Getting ready for winter. And so I decided I wanted to dedicate this episode to looking at legends from my childhood and also looking at the types of mythical encounters that we might have in one's life. So on this episode of The Prototype, you can join me in the journey of trying to look at legends and mythical beasts. I'm your host, Coulter Wilson. On this episode, we're going to dive in to the world of mythical beasts and legends. Because this, this is, this is the prototype, the prototype, the prototype. I'd like to talk about the legend from when I was a kid. The reason I want to talk about this legend because it really played a huge part in my childhood. Now, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you would know that the last episode that we had, we talked about Spring Canyon. Heck, the last episode was called Spring Canyon Coal Mines. When I grew up in Spring Canyon, we always had a legend when I was a kid. It was our ghost story when we were kids. I think all of us have them. I think it's part of being a kid. There's the spooky ghost in your neighborhood. Well, our spooky ghost in our neighborhood was called the White Lady. Now, as I've grown up, there were different iterations of the story of the White Lady, but there were a few things that were always there. It was a woman dressed in white. She lived up in Spring Canyon. And it had something to do with her finding her baby in the creek that cruised right along my house. It was a small creek. 
Now, it took me a while to track it down. It took me about 30 seconds of a Google search to find information on the white lady. And it's funny because this is the story that I heard. And let's talk about it in the context of history. And the story goes like this. Spring Canyon, as you know from our last podcast, started around the early 1900s. The first mines were in the late 1800s, but really took a peak around 1910, moving all the way into the 1950s until the mines disappeared. Somewhere around 1910, they would go to all these other countries. Think like Czechoslovakia, Russia, Italy, Spain. They would hire immigrant labor to come over and work at Spring Canyon in these mines. They would say, in America, the streets are paved with gold. You're going to have a house. You're going to have furniture. You're going to have everything that you need. I see you live in poverty here. Come to America. We'll pay you well. In all reality, it was cheap immigrant labor to mine coal. Most of them came through Ellis Island. That's where my great-grandfather came to America through straight from Italy, went over to Carbon County, Utah, where they worked in coal mines. Specifically, my family worked out of Kenilworth, and then my grand, my grandfather actually worked out of Spring Canyon. He worked for the Liberty Fuel Company. But when you think about the different stories, this is the story that was all too common and because it was so common, it became a ghost story of my childhood. And the story goes like this. There was a woman, she had her husband, and she lived in a town in Spring Canyon. She came over, she was an immigrant woman from Italy, and she had her husband, and they just had a small baby. Now her husband went to work in the mine that day, just like any other day, Mining was a dangerous business back then, and people died all the time. And so he went to work, and during the day, he actually died in the mine. Now, the funny thing is, is we don't really have a good record of this, and this is why, is because labor for men was actually cheap and easy to get. But if a mule died there was a record of that. If a horse died, there was a record of that because they had to stop work. There were actually less of them than there were people. But if a person died, there was really no big deal. They would take them out and they would just replace them with another person. Kind of crazy when you think about it. Well, her husband went into the mine that day and he was working and an accident happened and he died. But here's where the story gets real twisted because this is the story and this is the reality they just had a new child she was distraught that her husband had just died she's in a horrible place and she's got this brand new baby and of course the mining company shows up and they show up and say hey really sorry that your husband died i totally try to empathize with you and and talk about how sad we are because your husband died, he's no longer an employee of the mine. And so you actually have nowhere to live. At this time, if you worked in the mine, your housing was provided by the mining company. And as well as your food and really just all of your being. 
And so with that, you don't also don't have a place to live for you and your brand new baby. And so the white lady, as she became known, walked up to the mining office to talk to the bosses. And as she got to the foreman, she said, look, I have nowhere to go. What are you going to do for me? And they're like, well, there's nothing we can do. You're not an employee anymore. You've got to leave. And she went back, grabbed her baby because she had nowhere to go, no one to live, no family, no nothing. And she went down to the creek, the creek that flowed by my house as a child. And she drowned the baby because she had no way to provide for it. Now she's lost her husband. She's just murdered her baby. And she walked back to the mining office wearing a white dress, though a dress she wore on her wedding day. She climbed up to the second story balcony. She put a noose around her neck and she hung herself. And she hung there. Now, when I was a kid, we talked about the fact that the white lady wearing nothing but white would walk through the creek looking for her baby. And the story that I told when I was a kid was something more of kin that there was a flood that happened in the creek and it washed her baby away and she was always there looking for it. But it didn't matter. There was always the baby. There was always the woman. And that was part of the legend. A legend I know kids in Helper, Utah still tell today. Hello. Hey, Camille, this is uh, Coulter. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I, I The reason I'm calling is because you told me that you have had some sort of interaction with a myth- mythical beast. I would love to talk to you about that. Yeah, I, uh, I had a dream in which I interacted with a mythical beast. Uh, do you want to know just the dream, or do you want to know the context that was going on in my life at the time, too? Actually, I, I'd love to start with the context that was going on in your life, and then let's talk about the dream. I think that would be awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, I was in college, and I was uh, traveling during the summer. I had just flown into Delhi, India, and it was my first night sleeping there. That's the context. Okay. And you had just flown in to India... And you were in mm-hmm. Delhi, and what? what mm-hmm. Where were you staying in Delhi? Were you in a what, what kind of place? Were I you was at? staying. I was staying with a friend of mine, actually his his brother. So my friend was getting married, and uh, in in India, and I flew in for the wedding, and I stayed with his brother. Okay, and you stayed with his brother, and you went to sleep that night, and you had a dream where you encountered a mythical beast. Correct. Correct. All right. Well, why don't you? Tell us a bit about that dream. Sure. So in the dream, um, maybe because I was traveling, I was staying somewhere with friends, and we were all traveling together. And <clears throat> I decided to go out on a on a walk. And I walked through this city that I was visiting, and the city was this old city. Like, all the buildings were really old, and I just strolled down the streets for miles and miles. And at some point, I saw this little stream or canal going through the city, and I decided to walk down to the shore, and I walked along it uh, for a while. 
until I reached this bridge that I was going to walk under. Under the bridge, there was a man. And the man, you know, started to speak to me. He's like, hey, how's your mom? How's your uncle? Like, really familiar. And, you know, I immediately felt like this was a red flag. Like, who is this guy? Like, who knows my mom and, you know, uncle? And I think he said some details about them. And, and I was like, this is, you know, very strange that this random person in this random place knows anything about my family. And so, you know, I, I, I walk up to him, I start talking to him, and like immediately, like I just have this gut feeling like this isn't, this isn't the person, this is the devil. Like in my mind, I could see like this overlay, like the man's face, and then like behind it, this, this red beast with horns and a goatee and, you know, the red and the fiery face and everything. You know, it was just uh, a fiery beast that was like a fiery man-like beast is the best way that I could uh, describe it. And he tries to convince me, he has this coconut in his hand, and he says, can you take a look in, inside here for for me? And he wants to show me something, but I, like, I'm cautious, you know, so I, I know that the last thing I can do is look into that coconut. I cannot look in that coconut. Danger lies inside of that coconut. So instead of looking into it, I point to it and say, hey, what, what's that right there in, inside the coconut? He's like, what, what is it? He looks inside the coconut and sees his own reflection, and then goes, no, and then burns up into a fiery ball. And I woke up shortly later, and I was like, huh, I defeated the devil. Oh, my God, I'm a badass. It had a coconut, but it had magic. And in my dream, I knew that it had some magical property, that there was a trap laying for me in the coconut, that if I looked into it, somehow I would get caught by the devil. I'm not religious, actually. I guess I would call myself like a spiritual atheist. You know, I'm eight, I don't have a, a belief, but I do recognize that human beings have a spiritual side to them, and I acknowledge my own. Well, I mean, I, I gather two things from this. One is, in the in the symbols of the, the symbolism of the dream, you know, the, when he looked at himself, the feeling I have is that, like, he saw who he truly was. He saw the true, the evil that he truly was, and it was too much for him to bear. So that was the feeling that I got from the dream. But the thing that I take away from it is that, you know, your dreams respond to how you're feeling. If you're feeling scared, you're going to, you know, see something that's scary. And if you're feeling brave or you can muster up some courage, then you can defeat the things in your dreams that, that you're afraid of. That's what I got out of it. Generally dry day on Wednesday with sunny periods. However, there may be more cloud in the southeast where it will be breezier. After a chilly start, it will be mostly dry on Thursday with some sunny spells. However, it may be rather cloudy in the southeast. dragon lived inside Larry's cupboard. At nights, it would push open the doors with its little green snout, then fly out, gathering up loose change from down the side of the sofa, from coat pockets, from the sill by the door, that is to say, wherever change could be found, the dragon would sniff it out and collect it.
the dragon, a dragon that stood on two legs for the most part and looked much like your memory of a gargoyle, would gather up the coins, filling its arms until heavy, then take it all to its roost in the cupboard, where it would settle onto the new treasures, curled up, and guard them fiercely. A dragon lived inside Larry's cupboard. The cupboard had been chosen by Larry's wife not long after they'd married. He'd watched her eyes alight as she found it in the corner of the old antique store. Crafted in China, 1907, by a famous artisan from Beijing, just arrived in today. A real great find, said the shopkeeper. Won't be here long. A bright burned orange, as if a dragon had poured whiskey-colored flames over it. Larry's wife ran her fingers over the cupboard as tenderly as if it were her own child. Both the cupboard and a child of her own were things she knew she could never have. She left the shop reluctantly, dejected, the price tag far too high. Her head stooped far too low. No doubt someone wealthier and more deserving than them would snap it up later that day, and she'd never set eyes on it again. The money had been saved up for their, already very late, honeymoon. Larry decided a glorified vacation could keep on waiting, could happen any time when they saved up again. Instead, later that day, he crept out of the house and back to the old antique store. There he exchanged Hawaii for his wife's happiness. There was a demon growing inside Larry's heart. He'd turned to gambling and to drink when his wife had been diagnosed. A distraction from his own pain, he'd supposed. The pain he knew lay ahead. He wasn't a very good gambler, but he found he was an excellent drinker. Sadness crept into the house like an afternoon shadow had never left. Just set deeper as she grew sicker and weaker. Then, once she was forever gone, the house became dark, even in the brightness of the midday sun. He gambled and drank harder, blacked out in corners of the house or in the overgrowing garden beneath the cold tombstone clouds. Soon, he knew either the unpaid bills would kill him or the drink would. He'd prefer it to be the drink, he decided. It was two months later Larry found the letter from her, the same day the dragon moved in to her beloved cupboard. He read it, then did so again and again, and stained it with tears until the ink ran and the paper softened. The note simply said, I love you. It was old. She'd used to leave notes for Larry back when they were first in love, hide them in mugs and under the mattress and in a hollow in the willow, and he'd find them when he was least expecting, like today. I love you, it said. It spoke to the man he'd been back then, not the man he was now, full of hope and happiness, not sour and yellow-eyed and nearing bankruptcy. He wanted so badly to be that man again, the man his wife had loved preciously, furiously. The dragon moved in that same night, 
and every night from then on, it would gather all the change in the house and roost itself upon it, guard it from Larry with its flaming breath, the same bright burning color of the cupboard, of his wife's soul. It would not let him waste this money, not let him harm himself with it either. Instead, it would protect it until there was enough to spend on this month's mortgage, or on the electricity, or water, or on lilies for her grave sometimes, when he could bear it. There was a dragon inside Larry's cupboard, and there was a flame now burning inside Larry's heart that had killed the demon that kept Larry at least a little warm, even on the coldest, darkest nights. Well, that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Camille for taking my phone call and telling me about his dream where he encountered a mythical beast. I'd also like to thank Rupert Froggington for writing the wonderful story, A Dragon That Lived Inside Larry's Cupboard. I'd also like to thank my wife, Becca, for reading that wonderful story. And of course, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for always coming back and listening to The Prototype. As always, like, subscribe, all the things. And as you know, I'd like to put out this show more often. It's really a passion of love, putting out this podcast. And you never know. Maybe I can get to doing this more often. But as of right now, if you subscribe, you'll get a push right to your phone. This is the prototype.